Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 19. Thank you for being here. And a special thanks to our Patreon patrons, who coincidentally happen to be my favorite people in the whole wide world. If you aren't a patron, don't fret. I still value you as a member of the human race as we work toward the future. A bright future. A future that would be even brighter if you took a minute to find Artistic Finance on Apple Podcasts and subscribe, and then leave a rating and review. But if you're too busy to do that, Know that your self-worth as a human being does not diminish. You are perfect just the way you are. Today's guest is Ariel Estrada, an actor, producer, and arts activist. He is the founder and producing artistic director of Leviathan Lab, a creative studio for Asian American film and theater artists. He has acted on television, film, and off-Broadway. He is the Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator at Actors Equity Association and was previously the Manager of Communications and Community Engagement for the Asian American Arts Alliance. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Ariel Estrada, to the podcast. Hi, Ethan. Thank you for inviting me. This is great. And I'm just going to say that this is August 24th, 2020, that we're recording this on. So we're amidst the COVID-19 pandemic and also Black Lives Matter reawakening going on. Yes. And we're all sheltering in place here in New York City. Things are appearing to be opening. I'll be very glad when the gyms open again, although I'm going to be, you know, I'll be doing the whole schmiel on the gyms with the mask and probably uh, a visor and all that fun stuff. Okay, question about that, because my wife goes to the gym and she does the group classes. Oh my God. Yeah, that's pretty risky. They're going to limit that to, I mean, I don't think we know, but they're going to limit it to like 30% capacity. But she's trying to decide, like, does she want to restart her membership? Because she's like, she doesn't use treadmills or any of the equipment or anything. Like she only does the group classes. I've been seeing a lot of like, people in the park, like trainers in the park. See, uh, one of my many survival jobs that I've done to support my acting habit was a personal trainer. And you can't tell now, at one point I had uh, looked like a personal trainer, and now I look like that I've been eating my cooking for three months. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody who sees any of my social media pages will see lots and lots of food porn. Uh, (laughs) It's amazing. Well, since we're, we're starting here, could you give us a recap of your life, your life and career? I am an actor, producer, and, you know, there's many different ways of people describing this. Um, activist, advocate, uh, arts advocate. There's some people who's, who I'm very good friends with who feels like the, the term arts advocate is very, it's, isn't inclusive or, de- or is slightly demeaning, and I frankly don't see the reasoning behind that, because uh, I am. That's what I do. I advocate for people in the arts, specifically uh, for the Asian American community and for people of color and BIPOC communities. Partly through necessity to that I've had, that I have became an arts advocate. I came of age or I moved to New York relatively late as an actor. I moved here when I was about 27. At the time I had graduated from the University of Washington back in the late 90s. At the time it was the third ranked acting school in the country right behind NYU and Yale. Wonderful training, at least as far as it could have gone back in the 90s because it was still rife with racism and inequity 
and with all that implies in our uh, white supremacist system of training people, which actually yeah, white supremacist everything <laughs> in this society. 30 years later, I'm still suffering from what happened to me there in my program uh, and the blatant racism that happened. Even though it's something that happened in the past and clearly that these people now can't do anything about, it's still important for these students of color who have suffered under that system to be able to tell the perpetrator what happened. That's self-defense 101. You have to tell the experience and you preferably tell the experience to the person or the organization or the group that did it to you. They need to hear it. They need to know exactly what kind of harm they did. Because, you know, every year, somehow, it gets out to theater practitioners of color, mostly Asian, but also other students of color. It gets out that to seek out Ariel. Talk to Ariel. I know you're really hurting. Talk to Ariel. These actors have to spend all this time, rather than like their white colleagues who can just go out and act, they have to spend all this time going through all their shit. You know, they walk into a room with mostly white people when they're lucky enough to get cast in those situations and have to go through these layers and layers of guardedness and defensiveness that they have to do before they even get to the work that their white colleagues don't have to deal with. Yeah. So I'm all for, <laughs> I'm all for these situations where white folks have to hear what is going on and hearing exactly what harm their privilege has done. Yeah. Um, even today, there was a, I want to say a statue in Central Park was announced that it's going up, and it's of three women, and one of them is Susan B. Anthony. Ugh, God. But I know, exactly, but I thought, I'm, I'm just interested to see what the dialogue is around that. Susan B. Anthony, female, yes. Non-white females, there's opinions there, you know, so yeah. should she still be hailed, or is there somebody else we could wow. statue, you know? <laughs> For your listeners who don't, may not know... Susan B. Anthony is a pretty controversial figure because, yes, of course, she was a feminist pioneer, but she was also notoriously anti-black uh, and worked, actively worked against uh, black people getting the vote. It's no surprise that 45 pardoned her because it was definitely a dog whistle. Yeah, I personally am tired of seeing white people up in statues. I would love to see more people of color in statues. I would love to see people who have been harmed by these systems to be, and, and their efforts to fight these systems be extolled, right? And be honored. And a lot less white folks who benefited from this kind of oppression on folks. You know, that I know that's extremely controversial. I'm not anti-white, but I am pro people of color. As you can probably tell from my bio, I have done a lot. Doing a lot has been a symptom of like trying to help everybody. And I, I have done some small amount of good, I would like to think. You know, how much harm did that did, do me while I was doing it? How effective, much more effective would I have been if I had been more discerning? And all, not so much discerning, more realistic about what I am actually able to do. And one thing that I'm really, that I'm hearing more and more now particularly with folks of your generation, millennial and younger, where self-care is really important because they're seeing people of Generation X and other generations who's like how, how much damage they've had to go through to get us where we are. And it's both psychological and in many cases physical. It's also not acceptable to be hurting ourselves to be in doing this work. Sort of bringing it full circle to, to financial, <laughs> how that reflects financially, 
there's a lot of self-harm that happens financially, right? People overspend, people underspend. They spend money on things that don't help them. You know, the obvious thing that people spend things on is, you know, alcohol and drugs and going out too much, general self-abuse. Doing these in like and hardly approved, right? You know, there's there's a balance in everything, and like overspending on alcohol, overspending on sex, overspending on anything that can be abused on pretty much anything, it's it's an aspect of self harm. I mean, I could go on and on about that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm pulling this question forward because normally I put this one later, but this is the first time I'm pulling it forward because I find this important. Could you describe your demographics for us? Oh yes. So I am a uh, Filipino American man. Uh, gay and Generation X grew up in the 80s, 90s uh, at the middle of the AIDS crisis. So these are all important things because I do identify both as gay and as as Filipino. And I'm also um, pretty solidly working class background. My parents were immigrants from the Philippines. You know, and they had to contend with so much racism when they lived here. Very, very ambitious ambitious, both of them. I have a solo sto- solo show that I'm working on right now, which is going to have a workshop online that tells the story of my father and peripherally tells the story of my mother a little bit. My mother's story is, is really interesting, but I think I'm going to end up having to wait until she has transitioned to another plane to actually tell that story. It's a pretty intense story. And this is, of course, one of the responsibilities of being a an artist, particularly in the times we're living in, what kind of stories are we going to tell? What kind of harm do we do when we're telling these stories? I could tell my mother's story right now, but it would really upset her. <laughs> it would really upset her. It would also probably do some pretty intense harm. Of course, I would tell this story to honor her and her immigration story. But we're in the middle of a huge social crisis right now, which is in addition to what's happening to black people right now and have been has been happening to black people throughout our history. We're currently going through a major crisis right now, also at the border, with concentration camps at the border, Latin people being tortured at the border for their immigration status. Uh, and we have an open white supremacist, of course, Stephen Miller, in uh, as part of his staff. Again, open white supremacist. We have racism and racist systems being perpetuated and encouraged by the highest office of the land. It's terrible. I mean, there's nothing more I can say about that. I mean, the, the last four years have been absolute torture for anyone of conscience, anyone of good conscience. So I bring up my background because they're really important in terms of how this affects me financially and how this affects me in these very white supremacist systems that encourage American exceptionalism and read that as white exceptionalism specifically, right? The American myth of hard work will get you anywhere right? But does not acknowledge that you are going to suffer if you don't have a certain amount of money, right? And so coming from this lower middle class background, I was the first person in my family to go to grad school, to get into much less the third best acting school in the country, right? But then I was also uh, also gay in the middle of the AIDS crisis, and I came out in my first year, and my uh, my parents had a very hard time with it. Right, and they, I ended up having to. They ended up not speaking to me for a year, uh, and cutting off my funding for grad school. They eventually came around, <laughs> and, but but that first year was that first semester, that first year of school was terrible. I was going to school full time, and I was working two jobs: one at Subway, one at Mrs. Fields Cookies, <laughs> right, 
to at least have some spending money and I took out thousands and thousands of dollars worth of loans to be able to stay because I was pissed. Uh, I was not going to let this homophobia affect me going to school, right? Because I'd worked too, worked too hard to get there. But then I moved to New York and, you know, it's this old boy system where if you go to NYU or can afford to go to NYU or go afford to go to Yale or afford to go to Juilliard, I might as well have gone to school in Timbuktu or not spent all this money to go to University of Washington where I didn't even, where I barely got a scholarship, right? Because they didn't have that kind of, of money or they didn't have those kind of programs there. But then also it affected me because I had been accepted into NYU. I was accepted to the NYU grad program, but I was so afraid of AIDS at that point. So these are all sort of like these, how your personal life affects your financial decisions. So I made these decisions that affected me for the rest of my life that were intimately connected to both my status as a person of color, as a marginalized person, marginalized in every sense of the word, both through sexual orientation and through, uh, through race. Being a child of immigrants, right, there's, there's a, it, as well. These things affected my financial decisions, which in turn affected every single decision down the line, to even to what the kind of work that I do now. I've done all this work as both an arts advocate and working in the corporate world, which most actors don't have. And in many ways, I'm grateful for it now because I actually have a job and have some money coming in that most of my friends are un right now are unemployed and they're really suffering, right? And be because I made these decisions to not put all my time into acting, because I couldn't. I had thousands of dollars of student loans, had to, uh, uh, had to do this, and I did not come from means. Uh, I did not have the the luxury of a trust fund, which is truly a luxury. <laughs> and uh, so I, I had to learn how to do stuff other people didn't do. And I, I would have loved to have not have to have done that. And I'm grateful now, certainly that I do know it now, but it definitely held me back in many ways. I have, I, you know, all things being equal, you know, I have several friends um, who do come from trust funds and do have that privilege. Uh, we both get the same audition from our various agents for the same for the same IT tech guy or nurse or doctor that Asian men are relegated to play on television. You know, we both get it at the same time, late in the day or even in the evening. He takes a look at the sides while like, look, having dinner, gets to watch a TV show, looks at the lines and maybe starts doing some cursory work to memorize it for his 11 a.m. audition the next morning. Wakes up the next morning, goes to the gym, and is able to put a mask on. <laughs> mask on, look his best. Oh, he gets to put, choose his outfit and choose his outfit and make sure that he's got a little bit of powder on his nose. And oh, I'm out of powder. I get to go to the drugstore and pick up something that uh, I can powder my nose for this TV audition, so my my radiant Asian skin doesn't such uh, their radiant Asian skin doesn't shine too much on camera. And they memorize the lines and leisurely take a car to the audition that's way over at Chelsea Piers on, uh, you know, where they have, so they don't have to walk, you know, the, the eight avenues to get there. And then contrast to me, who has to wake up at six in the morning, works up until seven at night, various freelance jobs to try uh, to uh, seven or eight or nine even at night, has to wait until about right before bedtime to even look at the sides or and sides for people who don't know that term, the little p bits of script that we have to learn. 
and you have to be memorized. You just have to finally get around to memorizing it or to look, even looking at it around nine o'clock right before I go to bed and I'm already exhausted and then have to wake up at five or six to like really memorize them and then also answer a bunch of emails for my boss, ask the boss if I can take an early lunch, which really isn't an early lunch. It really takes two or three hours to all told because you have to commute there and then get there and get you know show up early so you can wipe the spread, sweat off your brow walk the, the three avenues to get there right who's going to get the job <laughs> it's not going to be me right who shows up frazzled and sweaty and and definitely not my best and who, I can't afford a car to get there so I do have to walk the 13 blocks to, or the three avenues to get there or eight avenues to get there depending on where you get off on the subway can you see how privilege helps you succeed at anything and, and just extrapolate that to any industry. People with privilege are going to have these certain and certain advantages. And these are even people with privilege who are people of color, who have been lucky enough to have this money. And then often this people who have this money are either people who have been here longer, who are second or third generation, or who had money from whatever uh, old family money in the old in the old country, right? And uh, it, it has to be said, and their proximity to whiteness, uh, because there's colorism involved in this too. Filipinos, the brown people, don't certainly didn't, mostly do not have access to that kind of money, and certainly not the Cambodians and the Vietnamese, right? Who all came from terrible trauma in their own immigration stories. So there's a definite hierarchy going on in there, and colorism. All of that is close as their how their closeness and all, how they are prox proximal to whiteness. These are all things that need to be examined and dismantled. <laughs> dismantled. And my biggest fear, of course, is that we're going to come back from COVID and that none of these things. I keep hearing that people want to go back to normal and normal was never good. Normal was never good. Everyone is clamoring to go back to that. And I'd be remiss if I didn't admit that, own, that my own culpability in that. But I also know that we can't do this again. I mean, these are the things that I've been fighting against all my life. We talk about financial decisions, right? And finances, like I chose to spend that kind of money to be in that kind of, and be perpetually in debt. I finally paid off those student loans. All right, good work. When did you pay them off? I paid them off about 10 years ago. It took me about 20 years and I only was able to do that because my parents helped me. Right? My parents helped me out. Yeah. How much was the amount like when you got out? Like, uh, I owed about $50,000. All told, between between undergrad and grad school, and and rough interest rate on that, just out of curiosity, ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> ridiculous. It was it was anywhere from I think it was about fifteen percent. It was a lot. It was a lot. It wasn't just my financial life that this affected. It affected my parents' financial life. Uh, my mother is just now retiring, and she's seventy-two. She's retiring almost by force. She was just like, I I just can't risk being around the, in COVID wards anymore or being in your COVID, I'm going to die, that happens. And my father, it was still working all the way up to 70. And again, this is sort of partly sort of Filipino an immigrant work ethic. You know, I'm not going to retire. Why, why should I? I could keep, keep working. The problem is, is that they needed to keep working. And they were helping me, both helping me and my brother to try and pay off their student loans because it was just untenable, these student loans, even with working full time and living with perpetual living with roommates in my 20s and 30s. The only way I was able to pay that off was with my parents' help. Student debt reform is a thing and desperately needed in this country. It, it just can't, I don't know how people do it without help. Of course, you see uh, any number of like acting students just drop out and they're usually people of color, but it's always, it's everyone, 
really. There's no way that this sort of debt can be navigated. As a white male, I can speak to the everyone part of it, <laughs> because in my undergrad and grad theater programs, the conversation about student loans was very often, oh, okay, so if you just pay the minimum for X amount of years, they get forgiven, or you die. That was always part of the conversation. But once you pay it for 30 years, you've paid way more than your initial amount, etc., even paying the minimum, you know. But sadly, that was always part of the conversation. But even the minimum is, is devastating, right? And your whole generation of people, depending on what economic class they came from, the only way you can go to school is to take out student loans. I had a friend of mine once who taught a financial health workshop. He was extremely critical of credit cards and as well he should be, you know, but he also says he recognized it like, oh, well, of course, you know, you have to have a certain amount of credit, blah, blah, blah. Everybody knows that. But going into cre major credit debt, of course, is basically you are selling yourself into slavery, selling yourself into slavery to these banks and these finance companies. And why would you want to do that? They make it so enticing, not just enticing. It's the, for some people, it's the only way you can even possibly begin to compete financially with other people. Like, in my early days in my career, in order to be able to compete as an actor and like get my headshots and like splurge on getting a car or a taking a taxi to my audition so I wouldn't show up sweating to death uh, on camera or at my audition and like be able to like rent out a rehearsal room real quick right before the audition so I can at least warm up my voice. All these sort of little costs add up and to be able to be competitive, you have to spend them. And the only way that I could be competitive was to go into some major debt. In my early 30s, I had to declare bankruptcy. The Bush administration was about to do a bankruptcy reform. I have to declare bankruptcy now. Once they do this reform, I'll never be able to like get this debt forgiven. And thank God I did it because it freed me. It literally freed me because I was shackled, I was shackled by it. And I became much smarter about my credit card debt because I was young and dumb and ambitious. Bad combo. That's a perfect combination to get sell yourself into the slavery of debt, is to be young and dumb and ambitious, and to be poor. That's what they prey on. They prey on you needing to be competitive. And look, if you were as poor as I was, I, you kind of had to do it. But in retrospect, I would have been much more discerning about when to do that. And also to be what to be, what to be competitive with, because of course, it's New York. I was young. I wanted to like go out with friends and go out on dates and stuff. And I would spend money on things that I sh should not have spent money on, <laughs> right? Like dinners, uh, not being disciplined about my discretionary spending. Going back to the theme of self-care, yeah, there is some discretionary spending you have to do. You have to take care of yourself and you have to have fun sometimes. You'll just end up doing it explosively later on or impulsively later on. Right, right. You have to go to the dentist. You have to go to the eye doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you, and you have to spend money on things like theater, and you have to spend money on things like taking an indulgence every once in a while. I mean, that's extreme ownership of, oh, you know, the decisions I could have made differently, like could have saved a little more money, could have not spent as much on the credit cards. Yeah, that extreme ownership is good, and I think everybody has that to a certain extent. But you have to have that to live in the world. You can't tell me that there's all these people that are spending a little extra here, a little extra here, there where they shouldn't be, you know, tighten their belt a little bit. You can't tell me that a majority of America is just not responsible enough. The 50% of 
the Americans that own 1% of the wealth, <laughs> it's almost like it's a system that's not designed for poor people. Only businesses are rewarded. It's almost like there's a system like that, that you get indebted when you go to school. We say we value education, and yet we expect people to, to spend crazy amounts of money in order to get it. Why we don't just pay for the whole thing, I don't understand, because it is important that we have smart intellectual people in our nation, and yet for some reason we decide that if you want that, you have to pay for it. I don't get that. <laughs> so anyway, so I admire your ownership of, oh, I could have done it a little differently, but the system is not perfect. Nope, it's that. <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head when you, you said that it's like the system is not built for poor people, right? Actually, let me take that back. It is built for poor people. It's built to create more of them. It is problematic to say that it's a system of slavery uh, with, credit, with credit cards because it demeans what black people went through with slavery, but it is a system of indentured servitude. Your, most of your funds, <laughs> or a good deal of your funds, end up having to go towards, towards debt, towards paying off, not even paying off the debt, it's paying the interest, right, to keep you forever beholden to these companies, right? Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's capitalism there for you, late stage capitalism for you, where it is torturing people. <laughs> it's essentially torturing people. Well, and like like Jeff Bezos, very very wealthy, <laughs> and and I I frankly actually don't because there are some people that say you know billionaires shouldn't exist, trillionaires shouldn't exist, multimillionaires shouldn't exist. You know I'm happy for him to have billions of dollars. Like I don't begrudge him that. I do begrudge him paying less tax than ordinary people. Why is somebody who makes forty thousand dollars a year paying more in taxes than? somebody who has billions and billions of dollars. Be rich. I want everyone to have lots of money. But in a fair society where we're all sort of doing the same things. Right. They should be paying what they should be paying. <laughs> right. Between all my jobs that I have to do, because I, I do a lot of freelance work as a marketer, as a marketer as well, as well as my residuals from TV stuff. And like somehow I'm able to cobble together this existence in New York City, which all told will be somewhere around $25 an hour. I am barely making it from month to month. I'm not saving anything. I am able to just pay my expenses on $25 a month. And this is me, and to be perfectly transparent about like what some of the advantages I've been able to get. Because I work in the arts and we make nothing, uh, I was able to qualify for a low-income apartment in an 80-20. And I'm living in Manhattan in a brand new building, and it's, it's great. <laughs> it's really wonderful. They make it so hard to get it and was a perfect storm of absolute right conditions to be able to get this apartment endless amounts of paperwork to be able to to do this even living in a low-income apartment and even being able to get some subsidized medical care through medicaid i am barely making it right and this is you know i remember one of my personal training clients he was a banker at credit suisse somehow the conversation in during one of his training sessions got to to poverty and inequity, and he was just like, they chose to be, you chose to be there. You're choosing to be poor. He was a client, and I was at the gym, but I was just like, if I had a drink in my hand, I would have thrown it in his face. It was a disgusting thing to say, that somehow poverty is my fault. You know, getting personal is political. I just broke up with somebody last year that I had a seven-year relationship with. Talk about self-harm. He was extremely wealthy, also completely just sort of into this myth of white exceptionalism. I worked hard for everything that I got. Basically his philosophy is like, well, you're poor because you decided to be poor, right? And I said, we're breaking up, right? And I got enamored by all these, by, by trips to Paris, 
and I excused his jerkiness. So this is one of our early conversations about, about marriage. He literally, this is a direct quote, uh, and I'm bringing this back to finance. He said, marriage? Why would I enter a business dis- a deal where there's a 50% failure rate? Oh, man. Yeah. I'm like, that's, there's also a 50% success rate. And, and, I, I, you know, and I also said to him, it's just like, that's what the prenups are for. It's like, I know I'm poor. And I know you'd want to protect yourself. I'd want to protect myself from my debt too. So uh, why don't, you know, and, but he said like, no, but then he responded with that, that there's a 50% failure rate with a, that business decision. Why on earth would I do it? That financial idiocy, right? Yeah, there's a fail, 50% failure rate, 50% success rate as well. And also there's more to life than just money. <laughs> and, and right. That's, that's the thing I feel like we're exploring in this podcast in general is that, Okay, marriage, he looked at it as a business decision. Why does everything have to boil down to a business decision? Take coronavirus. Why is the choice kill people or have an economy? How, how is that a choice? Why is that something we're arguing? You know, how do you fund the military? Does the military pay for itself? I don't think so. It's not a business. It's a military. And why should hospitals be having to pay for them? Like, why is money connected to something that's unrelated, like marriage? Like, why is that a business decision? <laughs> Because people are seen as property. You know, we're t- this podcast is about finance and it's like this is the ultimate in seeing how racial inequity, you know, and sexual uh, and gender inequity and all these things conflate. Like I can't even have the privilege of having a relationship of have some, somebody who is of mixed uh, economic class. I'm a little doom and gloom about my romantic prospects and how they are intimately tied into my financial prospects. There's other reasons for that. I mean, I haven't even gotten into some of the stuff that I've had to do to survive as an actor, not the least of which is that I'm a cult survivor. Oh, my goodness. Um, and that I ended up giving most of my retirement money to a harmful, dangerous cult. We need to whole, do a whole episode on that. <laughs> no, Sorry. <laughs> that's something I care about a lot. And that's what my solo show is about. Come listen to it in November. when you're <laughs> I, I have a question for you, okay, because I haven't even asked question number one yet. <laughs> Being old, I've got lots of stories. Okay. <laughs> Starting at the beginning, <laughs> to get to know your, your creative personality, what is a live event that you like to experience? Uh, well, it's probably not a secret that I am a uh, big theater buff. Right. And pre-COVID, I would literally go to theater every night of the week. Uh, there's be there's always always something, you know, always something going on. Interestingly, I, I have not been going to Zoom theater every night. It's I find it draining. I can only really go to it once or twice a week. I, I find the emotional labor it takes to actually go to those things and pay attention, especially after I've been sitting in front of a screen in meetings for work uh, is hard. To ask me to sit longer, even to watch your wonderful show, uh, is a big ask. Uh, one of the live events that I go to that, but rarely do is chamber music, right? I love string quintets and string quartets. And I remember seeing Sybarite Five uh, at this wonderful, small, gorgeous music venue at Chelsea here in Manhattan called The Cell. And it's this wonderful converted brownstone where they, took out all the floors and then built this sort of very Shakespeare's Globe type situation around all the floors, right? So a big hole in all the floors, uh, which ended up making a perfect acoustic venue for small intimate chamber performances. 
And I remember going to one of the performances and sitting in the front row and I had just separated from my husband and just weeping openly at hearing how gorgeous it sounded, how that vibration of the music just stirred something that you just couldn't get, even hearing it over the best sound system. You could, I could literally feel it in my bones, the vibration of the music just sort of hitting me and how that vibration of the music sort of shook things loose in ways that even words couldn't have done in a theatrical experience. That's awesome. That's, it almost seems immersive, too, in, in that venue. Yes, exactly. And it was so, oh, just, just gorgeous. They're one of my favorite string quartets because they're so weird. Very weird and very irreverent. They'll do this really wonderful classic piece from the classical romantic era, followed by Black Angels of just really something weird and surreal that's from completely contemporary. And they perform it all. <laughs> they're just, there's a wonderful group of folks and performers. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, what is a piece of art that you like? So look, I'm not a snob. I love <laughs> high art. I love low art. I love any expressions of humanity. If it comes from the heart, it's going to be something that I'm going to like. I will listen to a piece of classical music followed by a piece of like super poppy music, like mbop. Saw them in concert. Oh my God. <laughs> mbop. Hanson, just for those that don't know. <laughs> yeah, Hanson. Yeah, right. And it just like, and all that stuff is just like, I don't differentiate between, I'm not an artistic snob. I like it all. It has to be either really tasteless or really bad for me not to like it. <laughs> One of the ways that reflects is that I love comic books and I love that as a piece of, of quote unquote low art because I've seen some pretty amazing things being done in the form. And I also love cartoons. I love Archer. I know it's controversial to say because the guy who creates Rick and Morty is problematic. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Rick and Morty, and I love that it's anti-Doctor Who dystopian thing going on pretty much into anything that's dystopic at the moment, um, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah. Also, side note, behind you, your background is this, like, super cat. <laughs> <laughs> I like cats more than people, says your shirt. <laughs> yes, says my shirt, and I've got Streaky the super cat on my <laughs> background, Streaky. who was super... Streak of the Supercat, which was, uh, which was, I'm going to just change my background one more time to another cat. Uh, I, I love superhero cats. And there's another cat that I'm about to change it to, uh, which is Dexstar, the Red Lantern, which is from the Green Lantern mythos. And that. Like I, like, I almost want to, like, have you stand up and back up a little bit just so I can get your t-shirt and the thing and then take a snapshot of it to, like... <laughs> Okay, it's, it's actually a wonderful, wonderful dichotomy of like how I see life. I'm going to like freeze frame that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, quick. Did you get it? Oh, well, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to pull it later. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I sound, I sound insane. I am a crazy cat guy. So, you know. All right. Okay. So I feel like we know your creative personality now. <laughs> so I'm going to shift over to your financial personality. Are you bad with money or amazing with money? I'm not, not good with it. And there's a lot tied into that about me being bad with money. And I've gotten better with it, but I'm still prone to impulsive buys. You know, there's, there's so much that gets denied me for being poor, right? For being poor. And I have to, and then I will come into a little bit of money and then I spend it. I spend a lot of it, like, cause in this scarcity mentality, right? Where it's like, I better spend it now because I won't have it later. Rather than doing a smart thing with money, which is to invest it, to save it, put it away, be disciplined about it. But to be fair, even to calling that thinking smart is a privilege for people who already have money. Because when you 
don't have food or when you're struggling to pay your rent, you're struggling to, you know, I'm struggling to get my business, even have them a modicum of what my business needs to even, as an actor, needs to succeed. That sort of constant having to skimp and save, right, eventually reflects of like, ugh, I'm tired of denying myself and I will like splurge like $100 to go to take myself out for dinner or something, which I really shouldn't be spending. There's, there's also a scalability. The common knowledge is, oh yeah, save 15, 20% of your income, set it aside for your retirement. No matter what amount of money you make, you'll be able to retire. So if you're only making $30,000 a year, if you save 15% of it, when you retire, you'll be able to sustain the livelihood you had before. Or if you're making a million dollars a year, you save 15% and you'll be able to sustain the lifestyle you had before. But there's a scalability to that on the low end. Like, yeah, it does work that way. If you want to grow out of that, you're going to have to take risks, you know, go to crazy lengths. Yeah, you can have $30,000 out of your 401k when you retire, maybe. (laughs) But you're just sustaining a poverty level enjoyment or life or livelihood. Um, yeah, that's the smart that's the smart way to do it. But unless you're making over a hundred thousand dollars a year, what life are you saving for? Like you're saving for more of the same. Like and then not to mention, if you break your leg, if you have some sort of emergency, well, immediately there goes your retirement savings. Whereas if you're making over a hundred thousand dollars, okay, yeah, you can dip into your savings to pay for the broken leg, but it doesn't ruin you. On the lower end of that, it does ruin you period. Okay, you could say it's unwise not to save for retirement, but people are trying, they're doing their best, and then they come up against that event, boom, it's gone, and you can never recover, because this is America, baby. Like, you can never recover. I'm sorry, you break your leg at 35, you can never recover. Like, your whole planning of saving 15% is gone. The second you break your leg, you've lost your economic viability because you don't can't contribute, and you can't do that trading your labor for, for an income or at, at levels that low you're doing, it requires your body. It requires you to sacrifice it, like having to stand all day. If you're a waiter or like working in a processing plant or working, you know, the system we have is so precarious for poor people. This can't be sustained. I don't know why we would want to even sustain it. You know, we start asking why, why would anybody want to sustain this? And then you have to start asking really deep questions about, well, people will want to sustain it because they want to keep people down. Why do they want to keep people down? You start going into like, why these people, why the people in power want to keep um, people of color and marginalized people subjugated. Yeah. You said you had $50,000 worth of student debt. Um, but at the very start of your career, which I guess we'll say was moving to New York, did you move there here right after school? Uh, no, I stayed in, in Seattle for a little while, tried to save up money to move here, was working at Starbucks and you know, but then same thing. It's sort of like, even though I was living with my boyfriend at the time and we were splitting rent, there wasn't any real way to save on that kind of low, in, on basically working minimum wage, right? And I was doing some waiting tables, but then again, the, but any of that money was going towards student loans, you know, and anything left over was going towards basic acting career stuff like headshots and resumes. So after graduation, I spent like three or four years back in Seattle to try to save this money. I moved here to New York with a $600 credit card and $200 in my pocket. Yeah, that's amazing. And the year was? The year was 1997. I crashed with my relatives out in, in Forest Hills for a couple months until I saved up enough money to get an apartment with like this crazy dude in the East Village. Somehow managed to eke it by. That could not happen now. 
I don't think that could happen now. I mean, maybe if you had financial support, I would have, it was again, perfect storm of like, of help from people, right? I managed to crash somebody's place and I did this, you know, I, I did it by hook or by crook. I made it by, I managed to like eke out my early years in New York here. And then eventually booking a Broadway show, understudying halfway through the run of this show, I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to go back to waiting tables again. I cannot do it. So this was my first time realizing that I had to like branch out what kind of, uh, or diversify my income streams. Luckily the show got extended for one more extension. And then I used that money to go to the new school and got my certificate in graphic design because I said, I can't go back to waiting tables. I can't go back to doing secretarial work in a temp agency. I just, I just can't, I can't make that little money. And then it being the Clinton years, I got a job for Colgate Palmolive as a graphic designer for six years. Primarily, I worked as a graphic designer for the next 12 years after that. Was that, was that six years of like 40 hour weeks? And that was 20 hour weeks. Again, being the Clinton years, they were starved for people to work. So they had very wonderful incentives for people to, to work, uh, to stay with a company. And in my case, I don't think anybody would offer this again, ever again, but they were, it was a part-time position with full-time benefits. It was wonderful. It was really wonderful, but that is non-existent now. <laughs> Absolutely non-existent. I can't imagine any company offering that kind of th deal anymore. Managed to do that for a while. And then I worked as a graphic designer for a couple other Fortune 500s. And because it was such a flexible job, right, I was able to maintain some acting at that point, but I'd also at that point sort of given up. I was so discouraged by acting in New York. This is part of the reason that I started Leviathan Lab, my nonprofit theater company. I was so discouraged by lack of opportunity, right, for Asian American artists. And at that time, there were very few theater companies for Asian Americans there, and they were just making the transition to off-Broadway contracts. I'm not gonna keep it nameless because I'm gonna be highly critical now at this moment, right, where they, we're talking about capitalist systems, right? Um, don't get me started on the Hollywood, Hollywood Broadway machine, right? Which is sort of, you know, with the highly, uh, the highly scientific economic term star fucking, where only stars get to work on Broadway. The, the more vetting you've had by Hollywood, the more likely it is that you can be able to appear on Broadway, right? But you can't get a TV job without working on Broadway, right? It's sort of like this vicious, endless cycle. And then of course, it being, you know, the time that it was, it's just that there wasn't any work for Asian men and then, or very little of it. And then the, the work that I was going out for, I was competing against people with trust funds. So I gave up and I realized that there needed to be something else, a theater company where it was going to like find those Asian American actors that had just out of school, those Asian American actors who were already coming to me and talking to me and telling me about the terrible things they went through in their programs because they had racist teachers and racist systems. Why do my white colleagues get to fail over and over to get their 10,000 hours? And why do these mediocre, particularly white men, why do these mediocre white actors get every chance in the world, but then you have to be bloody brilliant as an Asian American actor out of the head of Athena, Athena out of the head of Zeus, brilliance out of the box. And then if you can't make a mistake as a person of color, if you're an actor, right? And I said, they need, there needs to be a place where these actors can get their 10,000 hours and be bad and experiment to be their young and really raw selves. 
playwrights and dramaturgs and directors as well, and designers. Early career artists could get their, their leg up. You know, and I also just wanted to fight against, I, I didn't have the words for it at the time, but I wanted to fight against that machine. I mean, I did have the words for it. I knew I was fighting against the machine, but I didn't realize that I was fighting against something much bigger than even the Hollywood machine. I was like rebelling against capitalism. Uh, I, I went back to acting and one of the first gigs I did, uh, I booked a commercial and I did made $42,000 in six hours of work. <laughs> and I promptly sunk all that money into starting Leviathan. And I'm much wiser about it now because Leviathan has grown along with, with me as its, as its creator and, and, or, or as its founder and now um, producing artistic director. That kind of like self-abusive behavior with my money, I sunk all my money into this nonprofit, which has admittedly has done a lot of good for a lot of people, but it did the person that it did the least amount of good for it was me. I'm much smarter about how I run that company now. But see, this is where it's like we're again, you know, we're getting into deep conversations about how racial inequity and gender inequity really fuck people up. And it fucked me, it fucked up my how I deal with my financial life. Again, I had a friend of mine who, who did a financial workshop and he described money as sacred because money is a reflection of your time. I would argue now that that's a really fucked up that we've equated money with our time. It shouldn't be, <laughs> it shouldn't be because we now we equate our self-worth with this money and this time, which is, of course, what happened to me. Uh, I was this, had incredibly low self-esteem because of the conditioning that I'd gone through, the conditioning of white supremacy, and that made me make poor financial decisions, right, which ended up reflecting in every decision I made. and still affects me to this day, even though I'm making smarter decisions now, just as because I've grown as a person and, and writing a show uh, about it. Really, that's my main therapy, yeah. <laughs> is writing the yeah. show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, do you file your own taxes? Yes, I know. No, what? No, I do not file my own taxes. <laughs> I, 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 yes, because I'm thinking about Leviathan's taxes. I file that because that's just for a 501c3, it's just like the, the 1099 easy. But I usually go to H&R Block. I, I did that insurance thing uh, if they, they, they end up contesting about it. But what they don't tell you there, and here's, here's a money tip for you. If the IRS contests your return, There's a statute of limitations on that insurance you paid for. It runs out after six months. The IRS didn't come back after me to contest my return from 2017 until 2019. So when I called up H&R Block saying, hey, I was insured against this, they said, sorry, your insurance ran out like months ago. And I'm like, well, that sucks because now I owe $3,000. Okay, wait, so pa pause just because I've never used H&R Block. You said, here, file my taxes. Here's all my information. And check, I will take insurance for if there's a problem with the returns, you'll handle everything. If there's a contesting, that the insurance will cover that. Well, the insurance is shit because to the IRS, being the IRS, didn't get to contesting my, my 2017 taxes until late 2019. Uh, the government now refers to us as taxpayers as opposed to citizens or consumers. I am a taxpayer in the fact that now I'm having to pay all this, this contested money with $100 a month. Okay, so now, like for 2020 taxes, did you get the insurance? I foolishly did. Yeah, well, not foolishly, not foolishly, because apparently it lasts for a year-ish. Not long enough. Not long enough, though, right. Well, technically, IRS can go up to six years or the something. The paranoid part of me was just like, why are they contesting this poor actor's 
taxes. It was kind of insane. I did something. I shouldn't say this publicly, so I'll probably cut this out. But I did something wrong on my taxes. Well, not wrong. I just may not have. I don't know. I don't know what the situation was. But when I asked the tax person, like, oh, should I worry about this random little insignificant thing to me? They were like, how long was it? Was it six years or longer? And I said yes, even though it was like four years at the time. (laughs) And they were like, oh, then don't worry about if it's over six years. I think now I'm at six years, but I'm still going to cut this out just in case the IRS is listening. (laughs) (laughs) God, what a world we're living in right now. Um, (laughs) Okay, so we sort of talked about this with the cult and whatnot, but do you have a retirement plan and what what are all the pieces of it? if it exists. <laughs> My current retirement plan is that I hope I die before okay. I become a burden on people. I joke, but that's actually is my retirement plan at this point because I have nothing saved. I have like maybe a couple thousand dollars saved and like my, my equity pension, haha, and my SAG pension, haha. I, I'm going to work till the day I die. I am going to have to figure something out. You know, if I live as long as my father, my father died relatively young. He died at 70, right? And I'm 51 now, right? So I've got 19 years left, hopefully. And that I'm hoping that I'm able to work and then die suddenly at this point. Because then I'm going to end... I'm serious. Because if I don't, then I'll become a burden to my to my nieces and nephew. And I will not do that. I don't want to do that. Make, make your will right now. Do not resuscitate... Uh... <laughs> Softball question here. <laughs> How much of your success has been hard work versus luck? It's all hard work. Any of my success that I've had, the commercial, like any of the co-star roles that I've done, and then the one guest star role that I've done, these are all things that just like I had to work my ass off to do and fight against sort of like these really impossible odds. I didn't have any of the privileges that some people who usually get these type of jobs do. That includes other Asian people and other people of color. Like, I don't really believe in luck, right? What is luck? It's preparedness plus opportunity. I have any number amount of preparedness. It's the opportunities that were harder to find. Opportunities sort of come from having that sort of access and privilege. Yeah. What financial advice would you give yourself back when you started your career? Or would you give actors, creators, somebody starting now? Boy, live within your means. Don't go into credit card debt to do, uh, or don't go into extreme credit card debt to do it. Be really disciplined about how you're using credit. It's a lot of wasted energy. Even now, to this day, it's been a lot of wasted energy on trying to uh, trying to get out of debt. And having that constant sort of sword over your head is not easy. There are still ways to succeed in your career and do those things. You just have to commit to it being a marathon and not a race. But when I moved here, I felt acutely that I was moving here relatively late. And then I knew that I was starting out at a disadvantage. I moved here when I was 27. I was competing against people who have been here since college, right? And have set, have seven years on me. Felt like I needed to catch up. And I felt like I needed to spend all this money on like really being competitive. And I was not thinking long-term. I would also say find a mentor as fast as you can or find a community where you can find a mentor as fast as you can who can help you answer these things because I did not find that, did not know about that. It's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about my work with Leviathan because I get to be that mentor. Whether these actors ever work with me ever again, often they do. Whether I ever even see them again, it's like, I don't care. It's part of the mission of Leviathan is to find these actors and to counsel them, give them some advice about like um, career advice, which ends up boiling down to financial advice, essentially. However you do it, take a course and take doing a business plan or something. If you did not get it in school, and you usually don't, acting programs are notoriously bad about providing this for their actors, 
get into a business of the business class where they teach you how to make a business plan, where they teach you how to come in with a financial plan on how you're going to fund your business. I also would have advised myself to go ahead and like create an LLC for my business and have kept all those profits separate from my own personal taxes because you know once you actually start making money in the business, you start making money in the business. Um, and I took a huge tax hit you know, from the times that I've done that work for even the best of actors. And by best of actors, I mean those who work a lot, <laughs> right? Uh, no, that's by no means saying that they're better, <laughs> right? It's still feast or famine even for them. Try to avoid getting into that cycle, get, having this boom where you have all this money all of a sudden and then thinking with scarcity uh, and then just spending it all at once. Unfortunately, the system is set up that way. Big case in point is the actors housing over on 42nd Street, right? They have this horrible system set up. Uh, I am so glad I never qualified for an apartment there because they've got the system set up where your rent is variable depending on how much you made that year. And then you submit your taxes to them in September of that year. And then if you had a terrible year, your rent is almost non-existent or very affordable to your taxes. But if you made a lot of money that year, all of a sudden you owe back rent at the amount that your rent would have been at that level. So all of a sudden you get this $10,000, $20,000 bill for rent. Anything you saved ends up going to that. You were talking about how the system is set up to work against the poor. That's a perfect example of that, where you have to suddenly give all this money that you, you yes, you're flush, but then it all disappears to debt. Not only are you not better off than where you've been or zero, but you're even worse off. <laughs> Sharks come to start to smell the money and they start to circle. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like you have $30,000, but all of a sudden you're $40,000 in debt, right? And it's just, it's, you know, a part of that would have been, I would have been protected from some of that if I had started my own LLC and been smarter about how I ran my business. So you're saying an LLC separate from Leviathan and separate from Ariel Estrada. Yeah. So that your biz business as an actor is its own business. Often people are advised to not do that uh, until you make a certain amount of money as an actor. Uh, I would have to look it up to, to make sure, but it was in a whole article about like how actors under the new Trump plan, the Trump tax plan, to try and uh, turn themselves to LLCs so that they can still take deductions from their business. Because once the new tax laws came about, I couldn't take headshots, the cost of headshots or the cost of buying a new computer against a, a, away from my business because it was all tied in with my personal business now. It's one of those things I still want to do once we're, the business starts coming back. Who knows, the tax laws may change again. But it's been disastrous for actors. All those plays that you went to that you thought you could take the tickets from, or those movies that you went to, or those DVDs you bought, or those classes you took, all of a sudden none of them are deductible. Or not deductible unless you do a ton of it, which you kind of should be doing, but you can't do a ton of it if you're poor. <laughs> You can't do that. I'm glad you said that because that was something when I like started, people are like, oh, save your receipt. You can write it off. Save your receipt. And then I get to tax time and I'm trying to figure out like, what can I write off? And it's like, oh, half the stuff I can't write off. Get with an accountant or the reality is you have to just look it up yourself and figure out what exactly can I write off and then hand that stuff off to the accountant. I mean, which is one of the reasons that I worked with H&R Block because it was just so... I mean, there's also free services. I mean, of course, uh, Actors' Equity has VITA, which is the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program to help actors who are traditionally both Luddites and not very good at math, or some of them, the stereotype at least, so they're not very good at math. I mean, these are things that they don't teach you in acting school, and they damn well should have, right? They don't teach you how to survive as an actor. 
I don't believe in luck, but I do believe in preparedness. Part of that preparedness is being smart about your business, including like how you're going to run your taxes, including how you're going to run the business of your business. And not just goals and stuff, but it's actually like the nuts and bolts of like what you're going to do from quarter to quarter, right? And how you're going to diversify your income. I mean, I was forced to diversify my income because there just wasn't enough work for an Asian actor. I had to learn how to get good at marketing and good at social media strategy and good at at graphic design and to this day it's like it's my bread and butter it's the way that i pay for all my acting i'm really glad you mentioned free tax help resources every artist i've had on has not filed their own taxes the only person who did was from south africa and she says it's really really easy there (laughs) um but yeah that's a good point is like yeah don't do it yourself and if you think you can't afford it which everyone always it always boils down to the amount of money they save you in deductions or whatever pays for what you're paying them but if you really are have no money or whatever there are free resources available you just have to google it and therapy yeah cool good good job good yeah, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> final question though i have one more after this i'm going to ask you but where can people find out more about you www.arielestrada or ariel estrada <laughs> e-a-r-i-e-l like the little mermaid uh, estrada like from chips <laughs> dot com uh, you can look up the work of Leviathan at www.leviathanlab.com. And I'll also have links to them on, on your episode page. Yay! Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, Ariel, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with us. You're very welcome. That was our interview with Ariel Estrada. My takeaways were, financial well-being is tied into your own well-being. Think about the business of your career. Figure out how you're going to diversify your income streams. When submitting your taxes to your tax provider, don't necessarily get the tax help insurance if the time period is limited. Chances are the IRS isn't going to come knocking within that time. If you have interests in writing or applying for grants, be sure to check out episode 19.1, a mini-episode in which Ariel explains his work as a grant writer. If you are a patron, be sure to check out our patron-only episode 19.3, where Ariel expands on his racist experiences, why he started Leviathan, and side tangents about cats and comic books. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.